Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Man, join me at the throne of grace as we pray once more. Father, we ask that by your spirit and through your word, You would cause us to be as enamored with and as entrusted to the Lord Jesus Christ as Philippians 3 calls us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's a special joy for me to be able to worship with you all today. I've benefited from the ministry of this church for a long time. And it makes me all the more thankful to be able to worship with you as a result. My wife Tracy and I, our our children, are are here with me today. Uh, We have a number of long-time dear friends who are members of this congregation, and it's truly a joy to be with you. It's also uh, worth my mentioning thanks to anybody who had anything to do with my invitation to be with you today, and you, you, you can hold your, uh, your thankfulness until maybe a few more moments. But I'm also thankful that today, as has been so beautifully highlighted already, to be able to worship with you on this particular date. It has been highlighted beautifully in the service, and many of you uh, may have already been well aware, but, but for those who, who don't know the significance of what this date represents, it is the 504th anniversary of the date that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and following that moment on this date, those many centuries ago, It's not an exaggeration to say that a tsunami of God's grace swept through the European lands and cities, the hamlets, the villages, the houses, and most importantly, the hearts of countless thousands, and and not only on the European continent, but truly throughout the world. And, and, And we are here today as a direct result of the aftermath of what the Lord was doing in that generation and continues to do now. And... It was a glorious season of refocusing on God 
and particularly of his gospel grace to sinners like you and me. And how God meets us favorably in one and only one person, his exquisitely, indescribably glorious son. The question that, that, that became the epicenter of the Reformation, and, and I believe has to be the question for every human heart, ultimately, the question then and now was and is, how does God save a soul? How does he do that? On what grounds? In what way? And the resounding answer of that generation in the Reformation to that core question was as we heard so beautifully a moment ago, he does so by grace alone. He does so through faith alone. He does so in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and ultimately to the glory of God alone. Well, I would love to dance through every one of those themes with you for the next few moments, but I've selected one of those themes for our focus today primarily. It comes from the passage that was read so clearly in our hearing. So please join me in Philippians 3 as we consider the theme, Christ alone. As you may recall, uh, the book of Philippians, just four short chapters, was written from a prison cell by the Apostle Paul. The primary thrust of those four chapters is an exhortation to the little church in Philippi for unity and joy in Jesus among the congregation. Unity and joy in Jesus among the congregation, that would be a, a distillation of the theme of Philippians. And when I say unity and joy, what I mean is, like in chapter one, Paul calls the church to rejoice in Christ even when suffering strikes. In chapter two, to rejoice in Christ even if false teachers try to undermine our faith, or chapter three, rejoice in Christ over any and every personal accolade or any of man's applause. You can't live for this if you're gonna rejoice in Christ. Chapter four, rejoice in Christ in the middle of hardship and loss. So throughout the letter, Paul holds up over and over again the diamond of the beauty of Jesus as the means of enduring in unity and joy in the Lord. You could say it this way, in short, Philippians teaches us that we will become like what we behold. And that's the incontrovertible rule of God's world. You can't break the rule, you can't change the rule, God has said it and there is no exception. You will become like what you behold. So Paul holds up the Lord Jesus because God's intention is to make us like his glorious son. Well, as we turn our way toward chapter three, I've got to say that I would love to walk with you through the beauty of the reality that Jesus is our life in chapter one and therefore to die is gain. Or in chapter two, that breathtaking mountaintop portrait of the Lord Jesus in the, the Christ hymn that though being God, in essence, he took on the nature of 
humanity and he lived obediently the life that we were supposed to and then he died that ignominious death that we deserve to die and as a result of his obedience all the way to the cross death God the text literally says super exalted Jesus he, he put him in the highest place he gave him the highest name and one day soon coming like a freight train and nobody can stop it every tongue will confess and every knee will bow in this great declaration, Kyrios Eis Christos, Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. I'd love to go to chapter four about rejoicing always in the Lord, even in the middle of the hardest stuff of life. And I guarantee you the person sitting next to you or behind you is going through something right now. And Philippians four says, Jesus, Jesus, we, we can do all things through his strength, even, even those hardest things, because he's for us and not against us, but we just have a little moment. So let me take you into chapter three. Go with me into this glorious passage that was read. It's the lens of Paul's personal testimony, but it's meant to be applicable to each one of us. And the text cho shows us three foundational truths of the Christian life. I could say it's just one truth, Christ alone. But Paul gets at it three ways, and I want to try to show those ways he gets at it. And, and for those of you who like this kind of thing, good. And for those of you who, who don't, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take the risk and do a little alliteration today. So you get, at first, Paul holding up the greatest prize in the universe, Christ alone. But there's a reason he values Jesus as the pearl of great price. He prizes Christ alone because he's tasted his saving power. And as a result of the power of the Lord Jesus to save a sinner such as Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the way, Paul then spends the rest of his life in this happy pursuit of Christ alone. So first, the prize of Christ alone, his infinite value. Notice verse 7 begins with that total life alteration word, B-U-T, but, but whatever things, I'm reading from the New American Standard today, it says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss. So what Paul had just done for the three previous verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, is he had budgeted. And he budgeted that territory, verses four, five, and six, to explain how spiritually awesome he was in his own estimation before he got knocked off of his proverbial high horse. And he was literally knocked off of a horse when he saw the glory of the risen Jesus. But before he met Jesus, he thought he was doing pretty well, especially spiritually. So in verses four to six, he unfurls his spiritual autobiography prior to his conversion. He lets us know that he thought that he was doing better than pretty much everybody and actually everybody. And if he were here today, pre-converted, he would look at all of us and say, well, at least I'm doing better than all of you. But in verse seven, he throws it all off. All that he thought he was, he grabs the cumulative total of all of that that he thought was once precious to him and he throws it into the spiritual dumpster. And what we see in verses seven and eight is a man who had been truly converted. We're talking about God invading a person's life. The Holy Spirit 
causing somebody to be born again. Regeneration, new life, where there was once deadness and spiritual decay. And he talks about the value of Jesus. This is what it sounds like to be saved. He's going to get to that power in verses 9 through 11. But let me just give a a quick illustration, and then I want you to look at verses 7 and 8 to me. Hopefully the illustration will help us to, to see what Paul's getting at. It's as if in verses seven and eight, Paul's walking through the department store of his whole lifetime up to that point. He sees a vast array of exquisite wardrobes of all of his good works and all of his spiritual prestige decorating the entire department store floor. But when he just was ready to think, of course God loves me. I mean, I mean, why wouldn't he love me? I don't know what he's been doing all this time until, until I came around. I mean, I can understand why he wouldn't love him or her, but me, after all, that's verses four to six. But when he gets to verse seven, his entire perspective changes. He no longer sees any value in his own righteousness. That's his word. And he instead, verses seven and eight, sees infinite value, prize, treasure, glory in the righteousness of Jesus. The second person of the Trinity became Paul's solitary prize. One commentator put it this way. Paul now considers even his most valuable assets in the flesh, verse 4 to 6, to be liabilities in light of his knowledge of Christ Jesus, his Lord. He even considers his extraordinary achievements of a faultless record of righteousness based on the law. That's what he said, verse verse 6. As for the law, yeah, pretty much kept all that. He considers it now, verse 7, to be worthless in contrast to the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, verse 9. So take a look in verse 7 at this word gain. I don't know if your translation renders it that way, but if it does, in the original, it has an S on the end. It's plural. Whatever gain I had, ESV, whatever things were gained to me, New American Standard, this word, I said, is is plural. It's literally gains. He was thinking of all the stuff that he was alluding to in verses four to six and all of his so-called righteousness, all of his spiritual do-gooding, all the things that he thought earned him two more points with God. I can remember my, my late grandmother, she was, a, she was a lifelong banker, worked her way up. Uh, at a bank until she retired. And uh, I can remember being at her house on occasion and she would have out this gigantic ledger book. You know, to me, it felt like it wouldn't fit on this, this, this pulpit when I was a little guy. It was just gigantic, had all the columns and, you know, colored um, uh, different lines and graphs. And, and she would have her gigantic ledger book, not, not for the bank, but for her own record keeping. She was a meticulous record keeper. And, and maybe everybody had one of those huge books that my grandmother used back in the day, but I only saw one at her house. So I thought she was the only one who ever had one. And, and she not only had a book, but she, she was a lefty. So I remember two things. I can still see it in my mind's eye right now. She had her lefty coffee cup. So you, some of you lefties know what I'm talking about. Or if you're a righty and you try to lefty's coffee cup, you, you know that there's a difference in a lefty and a righty. And her lefty coffee cup, if you were to pick it up righty, it had a hole on that side and it would just pour all over you. So she had her lefty coffee cup and she could drink it. But if you picked it up righty, there, there, there goes the coffee or the contents. So she had her lefty coffee cup and she had her huge ledger. And it would be out on her kitchen table. 
That's exactly, spiritually speaking, what Paul's doing, verses 7 and 8. He's sitting down. He's in a prison cell. He has his coffee, and he's tabulating. He got one gigantic piece of parchment, but he only has one column. Spiritual assets. Verse 4 to 6, no deficit. He straight up said, I am blameless. I'm perfect. That's what he thought of himself spiritually before he got saved. His net worth was astronomical in his own eyes, especially compared to you. In verse 4, he said, I had more than all of them. I outdid everybody. But, verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, this is why I said he starts tabulating. This is where his ledger gets out. Do you see these phrases in in verse 7, 8, and 9? I have counted. Verse 8, I count in AS. Again in verse 8, I count them but rubbish. He's literally going through what one lexicon says, an intellectual process to think, to consider, to regard. He is doing math. In compared to Christ, all those plural gains are not less than Jesus. They are total loss. The verse, verse 7, is actually symmetrical in the original. He's setting up a parallel. That's why I'm saying he has a ledger out. Whatever were to me gains, next column, parallel, these I consider because of Christ loss. He takes the whole asset column and strikes through the entire thing and says, these are actually reasons that God should not like me. First of all, we're getting somewhere closer to our own hearts. I think you can see it, but before we go to point two, let me try to peel the onion, just, just one more layer in an effort to try to help us see the gains to the loss. What we see here is not that everything that used to mean something to Paul now dropped in percentage. His stocks didn't go down a little bit. The cumulative total of everything that Paul once thought commended him to God was now being factored on a bottom line in bright red ink as one gigantic liability. I don't know if the gospel has yet torn you all the way down, but until the gospel tears you all the way down, it can't build you up. And Paul is finally at a place where the bottom line for him is not only did my good not commend me to God, my best is actually a reason he should not like me. Spiritual pride, self-righteousness is the hardest sin for us to detect in ourselves. But it is a nauseating stench in the nostrils of God. It's tantamount, equal to throwing your head back with your eyes open and a big puffed up chest full of pride saying to God, I appreciate you sending Jesus and all that, but I'm doing pretty good myself. Paul moves from the past to the present in verse 8. Verse 7, he has counted. It's perfect tense. In verse 8, it's present, I now count. 
He's saying it afresh all over again on the day he's pinning this epistle to the church at Philippi. Everything is lost in compare with Christ. So first of all, before we go to our shorter final two points, let me ask you if you've ever gotten to this place where under some spirit-wrought illumination of the holiness of God and the standard of righteousness, he requires his own righteousness to come favorably into his presence. Have you gotten to the place where you agree with God that you not only need to be saved from the bad that you have done, and you definitely do, but you need to be saved from the best you've ever done. The most holy 10 seconds of my life are reason enough for God to send me to the devil's hell for a billion eternities. I don't have any good with which I can commend myself to God. And Paul got there from verses set four to eight. We need to be saved not only from our bad, but also from our best. Therefore, he considers them all loss. His appraisal of what used to be gain is now detriment. I count it all loss. I throw it all away. And many of you have heard devotions and sermons and you've done your own Bible studies on this passage and you know the word he uses. Rubbish in the New American Standard, literally excrement, manure, garbage, kitchen scraps, the junk you would throw out for the foraging dogs to eat. That is everything that I once thought made God like me more. One commentator says, now Paul's new balance sheet, his new ledger of his net worth is complete at the end of verse eight. Paul has transferred all his former gains, all of his assets into the liability column. He made this transfer in order to gain Christ, one incomparable asset of surpassing worth. That's why I say prize Christ alone. Why? because Paul had tasted his saving power. That, that's verses nine through 11. The, the power of Christ, this, this is a reference to his saving work. As I mentioned, Paul had worn himself out trying to save himself, but what we learn in the middle of our passage, these glorious three verses, nine, 10, and 11, is that Christ alone can save a soul. Do you remember I said 500 years ago, our friends were trying to answer the question from God's vantage point, how does God save a soul? And I love you all enough to let you know, if we can't agree on that, what can we agree on? That's the whole issue of the Reformation. How does he do it? Verse nine, justification, verse 10, sanctification, verse 11, glorification. We commonly use the word salvation and we should, but salvation means all of that. How does he do it? Verse nine, I said, is justification. This is the power of Christ. This verse shows us that Paul had been striving previously to put God in his own debt. He was trying to twist God's arm behind God's back Paul was seeking to accumulate in verse six, blameless righteousness, my own righteousness. Verse nine, he says, according to the law. But here, verse nine, Paul speaks of a passive righteousness. He doesn't do it, 
It's done to him. He's not performing. He's receiving. You see the negative, not this, and you see the positive, but that. It's in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. Not this, but that. Not my own righteousness, not my own spiritual pride. Paul now saw what I called earlier that putrid stench, that nauseating stench in the nostrils of God of his own self-righteousness. It was all spiritual pride. And he saw what Isaiah talked about in the Old Testament, that all our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6, is but filthy rags before God. He had tried to achieve righteousness rather than receiving what the theologians call imputed righteousness. I don't want the righteousness of the law anymore. I don't want my own accumulation of good standing in God's sight by my behavior. I want a righteousness that comes, he says in verse 9, to me from God. How? Verse 9 tells us the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We've got to get this sentence right. Heaven and hell are in the balance in verse 9. The righteousness which is, verse 9, through faith in Christ. Faith. That's one of the other pillar hallmarks of the Reformation. Faith alone in Christ alone. What is faith? Faith is not a work. Faith doesn't put God in your debt. It's not you pray your prayer, therefore he owes you heaven when you die. That's a work. That's works. That's turning faith into a thing that it's not. What is faith? Positively, faith is the empty-handed receiving of all that God is for you in Christ. It's a yes to Jesus and a no to all self-effort. It's literally grabbing on to the risen Christ as if you're throwing yourself off a thousand-foot cliff saying, if Jesus won't save me, I'll never be saved. He's all my hope. I don't trust my ability to jump. I don't trust my ability to run and get further, flap my arms on the way down and fly. No, it's Christ. That's faith. And that's what Paul says. It's the kind of righteousness he wanted. But notice he wants righteousness. Uh, before we leave verse 9, I've just got to point this out. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you see that? He doesn't want, verse 6, his own righteousness. He doesn't want, verse 9, righteousness from law. He wants a righteousness that comes from God. Here's the good news and the bad news all in the same sentence. You have to be as perfect as God to get into heaven. Jesus said so in the key verse on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. You must be as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's Jesus. If you don't like that, your argument's not with Jordan, it's with Jesus. You know what Jesus is saying, don't you? You have to be righteous. You have to be righteous. You see, Paul wanted not his sin taken away only. That's really good news of the gospel. That is amazingly, incredibly good news. That your debt can be wiped clean. That you can be exonerated in God's presence and he can be just in forgiving your sin. But Jesus didn't die on the cross to make us morally neutral. If you only get your sin taken away, you don't get saved. You have to have not moral neutrality, not a clean slate. You have to have positive righteousness. How do you get it? 
Paul wrote it in another sentence, in another book in the New Testament. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's it. How do you get the righteousness of God? You have to hide from God in God. You have to flee to Jesus for refuge like Noah and his family into the ark. You have to thrust yourself into the Lord Jesus by faith. And when you do, God says, righteous. That's justification. Sanctification is in verse 10. What's the evidence that Paul had tasted the saving power of Christ? Oh, he wanted to know him. What a power-packed picture of Paul's justification in verse 9. When I, when I say sanctification, this is what I mean. I mean verse 10. Oh, I want to know Jesus. I want to know him as fully as he can be known on this side of eternity. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to have Jesus and a full experience of life with Christ. This is his supreme ambition it is to know his Savior. This isn't second-tier super spiritual Christianity. This isn't like the apostles, okay, you guys go be serious about all that Jesus pursuing. I'll meet you in heaven when I die. But between now and then, I'll just kind of do my own thing. No, this is, this is New Testament Christianity. When you encounter 1 John 3, when you encounter Hebrews 1, verse 3, when you encounter 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 6, I could go on. When you encounter what all those verses call the glory of God in the face of Christ, you become like the queen of Sheba before Solomon. Your breath is taken away. You say you exceed in glory all that I had ever heard about you. And you throw yourself into this voracious pursuit of knowing him. That's Paul's sanctification. His glorification is in verse 11. He wanted to know him in this lifetime, but he wanted to know him in the world to come in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's, there's debate if Paul's talking about his physical death and his uh, spiritual resurrection or the return of the Lord Jesus and being united in his risen body, but other places Paul uses this kind of language and, and ultimately we know he's talking in, in, in his, his total uh, slew of texts about this final salvation. When we, like Jesus, are risen and glorified, we're united in our glorified bodies in the Shekinah glory of, of, of Jesus and we get John 17, 24, Jesus said this is why he wants his people to be with him. Jesus said this, not to us, but to his father. Oh, oh, that they would be with me, Father, where I am so that they can see my glory. That's why he wants us there. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 11. That's his glorification. But the final part, Christ was his greatest prize. I want to know him. I count everything else as lost so that I can gain Jesus, verse 7 and 8, because he had tasted his power, verses 9, 10, and 11, and therefore there's only one option left. You sell it all. 
for the treasure hidden in the field. And you do so with joy. It's the pursuit of Christ. That's verses 12 to 14. These are familiar verses, but just let your eyes fall on verses 12 to 14 as we close. Because Jesus is such a wonderful redeemer, Paul was in hot pursuit of Jesus for the rest of his life. Maybe some of us need a fresh move of the Spirit bringing us to repentance from being diverted from true north. One click, two clicks off true north. There, many of us may be able to remember a time when verse 12 to 14 sounded like our own personal testimony, not, not just Paul's testimony in the inspired text, but oh, I'm not there yet, verse 12. I don't regard myself as having laid hold fully of, of Jesus yet, verse 13, but there's one thing, verse 13, one thing I do, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see what happened to Paul in verses 9, 10, and 11 is Jesus ran away to heaven with his heart. And when Jesus runs away to heaven with your heart, all you can do is verses 12 to 14. You have heard an illustration similar to this before, but if I told you that on my way in this morning, before I made it off of the 240 loop and back here in the little uh, first van, you know, uh, this is like the promised land back here. You guys are tucked away uh, in this part of the city. If I would have told you that uh, the vehicle I was driving got hit head on by a semi-truck, and then, you know, thankfully it, it made its way rickety and raggedy all the way to the parking lot. And I just scooted in just in time to be here with you today. But I looked about like this. You would, you would say, there's no way you had that kind of encounter. What Paul's saying in verses 12 to 14, Jesus ran away to heaven with my heart. And the way you know I've been run over by the tsunami of heaven's favorite is he is my highest pursuit. Jesus is such a wonderful redeemer. We haven't reached perfection yet, so brothers and sisters in Christ, let us press on. Let us take verse 13, one thing, number one priority. I love these words Paul uses in verse 13. Straining, ESV, reaching forward. New American Standard, it's the only time this word used in the entire New Testament. That word straining in verse 13, it means literally giving your all and exerting all you have for Christ. Paul's using this metaphor of the Hellenistic games and the runners who compete. And Paul's saying, he called me. He said my name. He came after me. He invaded my life. He arrested me by his grace, the least deserving. Instead of now thinking that God should like me, I'm now amazed that he called me into his family. So now I'm in hot pursuit of, quote, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters and friends, and good news, if you're a guest at First of Anne, this is my first time to ever be here too. So all of you new friends, here's the application. I prayed it at the very beginning. Make us as enamored with and entrusted to Jesus as Philippians 3 calls us to be. 
That's the application. It's, it's prize Jesus above all. Remember Paul's writing from prison? It's not when everything's good. Like, okay, okay, when you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face, O Lord, I will seek. That's Psalm 20. When everything's convenient? No, period, period. That's what Paul's saying. He's writing from prison. Prize Jesus. Count it all loss for, for Christ. Why? Application two, because many of us, most of us, I pray all of us have experienced the saving power of Jesus. You see, until Jesus is enough for you, nothing else ever will be. That's, that's the moral of verse nine. Christ and his righteousness by faith, yours. And if you've never come to him by faith, what Paul's talking about in verse nine is for you. You can be justified. The reason Jesus bled a bloody death and died the death you should have died and absorbed the wrath of God, Isaiah 53, 7, the Lord laid on him our iniquity. He had no sin, but he died absorbing all God's wrath for our sin, not his own. And we know, we know, we know God accepted his sacrifice. We have to wonder, we're not sentimental hopers. I understand all the traffic's going on 240 out there and they think, oh, there they go again. First advanced parking lot's full. All those sentimental hopers, they need a little religious crutch to get them through life. We know God accepted his sacrifice. They may think we're sentimental hopers. How do we know? He shouted to the universe through the biggest possible trumpet he could find called the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's alive. You can know that he will give you his righteousness if you'll flee to him by faith. And the last application would be not only prize him and taste his saving power, pursue him. You can't export what you don't have. And if you pursue Jesus... Guess what will happen to people around you? Same thing that happened to people around Paul. He just tries to give him away to the Philippians, even when he's in a prison cell. And as you pursue Jesus and he satisfies your soul with his all-sufficient grace, you, like Paul, will inevitably be found pointing others to him too. Well, the Great Reformation recovered the beauty of Christ alone. It's not just an idea. It's not just a theory or a theology. It's the radical transformation of countless thousands of people who have found Jesus to be all that Paul describes him to be in our text today. I wonder if you've experienced that reformation in your own soul. Has Jesus become to you the pearl of great price? Can you say with the writer of Hebrews, oh, he radiates the glory of God. Can, can, can you say, oh, I can't wait to see my Savior face to face because I've already caught a glimpse of the glory of God in his face, 2 Corinthians 4. Dear friends, this is what conversion does to a person. And when such Jesus-intoxicated people are collected together in a local church and he becomes the focus of our fellowship and the power of our ministry, not only will the whole church be filled with his beauty and his sufficiency and his saving power, but he will employ us to lead others to that same fountain where other beggars can find bread at his all-sufficient table just like we have. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that whatever things were gained to us, we would count as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, we would count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing 
Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.